Hello and welcome to Tyranny Today. And let's start with some good news for a change. The message is this. China does not choose who rules Taiwan. The Taiwanese chose who they want to be ruled by and they acted in a sovereign manner with a choice between three different approaches. The green one, the blue one, and the relatively new white one. Different people have different views and they are passionate about expressing their views with the energy and joy that we and other democracies threatened by tyrannies can only learn from. Between democracy and tyranny, Taiwan will stand on the side of democracy. And it's not me saying this, it's the Taiwanese president-elect on the night of his victory. It's a victory for democracy and for the democratic process. There were no riots, no protests. No pleas for a recount, no rear-guard legal actions, no phone calls to Georgia's governor. None of that. Just two phone calls from the defeated opponents with concessions and congratulations. And 72% voter participation, so the public mobilization was similar to what we had seen in Poland in October. In both countries, some people still remember how life was before democracy. In Poland's case, it's back in 1988. In Taiwan's case, it's in 1995. What can we expect now? Prior to the inauguration in May, it will be perfect time for the president-elect to unite the Taiwanese people and seek consensus on some key policy issues. The parliamentary minority of his party, the Democratic Progressive Party, DPP, means that une cohabitation à la française is necessary. Now think about Obama's shellacking in 2010 and many other cases of a split government in post-midterm elections in the U.S. So let's hope it's more functional in the Taiwanese case. The legislative yuan, the parliament, is divided between three forces, and the new white force, TPP, the Taiwan People's Party, is emerging as a potential kingmaker. They will probably align themselves with this or that party, depending on the policy pursued. And this is not the first time that a three-way split happens when Chen Shui-bian of the same DPP won the presidential election in the year 2000 with 39%, it was also a three-way race. So the legislative yuan will be divided and the winners will have to learn to govern by compromise. President Lai Ching-te has vowed to speak to the opposition and offer to integrate opposition figures into the government. And there are a lot of domestic issues to focus on because on the question of China, all the three candidates claim to have presented simply different colors of the same story. A separate democratic status quo without unnecessarily challenging the communists in China. Now, KMT, a party that, unlike the other two, traces its pedigree to mainland Asia, will need to do some soul-searching about its future because young people simply do not vote for them. They still have a powerful electoral machine and punch above their weight, but KMT probably needs a leadership change, and thus far the longer-term signs are not great for them, because 89% of Taiwanese aged between the age of 20 and 38 consider themselves Taiwanese only. And that's not the banner that KMT carries. One thing is um, this romantic nostalgia for some cultural connection to the Sinitic world, and nothing is wrong with that. But their ambiguous policy regarding communist China is one area that clearly does not resonate with young Taiwanese. Now, did China try to meddle? Mm, you bet they did. And they failed spectacularly on the TV screens. 
for every Taiwanese voter to see. For their gambit, the communists in Beijing found a chess figure that is still nostalgic of his 100-second-long handshake with Xi Jinping, that is Taiwan's former president, Ma Ying-jeou, and a senior member of the KMT. Last spring, he was invited by the communists to visit the PRC and to pay tribute to his ancestors' grave. His ancestors are from Hunan, even though he himself was born in British Hong Kong. But the paternal lineage really matters in Sinitic culture, so here we go, please come and visit Communist China. Back in Taiwan, Ma Ying-jeou began to work on the Chinese gambit to combine forces of his party, the KMT, and the upstart Taiwan People's Party, which enjoyed a swell in popularity at that time. The gambit failed spectacularly in November on everyone's uh, TV screens as the leaders of KMT and Taiwan People's Party began to hurl abuses at each other. Even yesterday, or the day before yesterday, the head of the opposition Taiwan People's Party repeated that dealing with KMT is like playing with a bunch of scammers. But Ma Ying-jeou was present at that televised debacle in November, showing his impotence to stem the implosion. His loss of face is well-deserved and, as we know, nothing is more painful for the Chinese. I doubt there will be any more handshakes with Winnie the Pooh in Beijing. Chinese public couldn't really learn anything about the election last weekend because there was a total news blackout on Saturday, both in the official media and on social media in China, where the theme initially was going dangerously viral. The bizarre official statement from Beijing was that the choice of the new president didn't reflect the voters' preferences, quote-unquote. The poor zombies in Beijing have a lot to learn about how democracies function. But instead of focusing on the goons in another country, let me just provide you with some tidbits about the excitement that the election generated around the island nation, something that you may have missed out unless you watch the Taiwanese media as assiduously as I did in the last couple of days. First, what those massive rallies reminded me of was probably Obama's victory lap in Chicago in 2008. That's the closest comparison to the energy seen around the Taiwan's baseball stadiums repurposed on this occasion for the rallies. And some of the linguistic fireworks used there were just hilarious, not least because of medial dysglossia that reigns in Taiwan. You're like, uh, what? <laughs> what does it mean? Well, Taiwan is basically a bilingual society with two languages spoken. One is uh, the native Taiwanese, which is referred to locally as Minnan, and it's quite close to the dialect spoken in the southern part of Fujian province in mainland Asia, hence Min which is uh, the shorthand for this part of the Asian coastland, and Nan, which means South. The second language was brought to Taiwan by the refugees who escaped communist persecution, together with Chiang Kai-shek's army back in the 1940s, and that's the official Mandarin Chinese. This language is referred to in Taiwan as Guoyu, and by then, the 1940s, it actually had a fairly short history as an official language. The nationalist government made this the official language of the Republic of China, barely three decades before, and the decision wasn't easy, given that Nanjing dialect was also proposed. So anyway, today, in Taiwan, the situation is somewhat similar to Switzerland, where people have a choice between expressing themselves in one of two languages. It's either High German, which is rather rare, and it's reflected in the fact that it is described as Schriftdeutsch, that is, written German, or, much more likely, they will speak in Alemannic language, commonly referred to as Swiss German or Schweizerdeutsch, uh, which is not mutually intelligible with the High German that you may have studied in high school. 
And good for you if you did, because German, not Chinese, is still the second most widely used language in scientific papers around the world, not to mention the wealth of philosophy, psychology, or social science that you will never grasp by just reading translations into English or into, I don't know, Old Church Slavonic or whatever. But back to Taiwan. The medial disglossia is between Taiwanese and Mandarin, and it was in full display during the election. The Taiwanese tend to chant in a call-and-response fashion. Now, what do they chant? The words mean get elected, like get elected, please, right? For example, Lai Qingde, get elected. In Mandarin, this would sound something like Dang Xuan, except that nobody in Taiwan would use Mandarin for that purpose, and the language of those public rallies is more likely Taiwanese. And the same meaning, get elected, is pronounced Dong Xuan. The trouble is, that sounds exactly the same as frozen garlic. So imagine you're in this crowd of 200,000 people, and the, and the crowd is chanting Lang Qingde, Dong Xuan. Lai Qingde, frozen garlic. Lai Qingde, frozen garlic. Tsai Ing-wen, frozen garlic. Xiao became frozen garlic, right? It's really funny, and goes way beyond the homonymous character of Chinese languages. For example, the other word that, uh, that appears in Mandarin at those rowdy electoral rallies is Jiao. In Taiwanese, it's Kayu. Uh, and that means go for it, go the full throttle, or, you know, I wish you success, break a leg or something like that. But then it, when you see it written, well, it could just as well mean Canadian oil. <laughs> In fact, if we look for the origin of that jayo, it comes from topping up fuel at the gas station. You just say, please top it up, then it's jayo. But the usage, at least in Taiwan, is a calc of Japanese gambatte, which means keep going, good luck, don't give up, break a leg, or something like that. So that's a game that you can play in this multilingual maze because even family names are translatable in hilarious ways. The very popular President Tsai Ing-wen, a Cornell graduate with very good English, has a name and a family name that translates into bad English. Yes, her name means bad English. While her KMT opponent from four years ago, Mr. Han Guoyu, means Korean fish. So here you go. Taiwanese politics can be really funny. Now, with the outcome of the elections known, the question now arises, who will be Taiwan's next ambassador to Washington? We know that the vice president-elect Xiaobi Kim's presence on the ticket irks Beijing, giving her unqualified success during her four years uh, she spent here as Taiwan's ambassador to Washington. Beijing even sanctioned her twice, but I'm not sure what that actually means in practice, because she does not have any ancestral graves to visit in mainland Asia. Her parents are Taiwanese and American. Most people remember her from that first Twitter message during Joe Biden's presidential inauguration when, for the first time since 1979, Taiwan's ambassador was invited to participate in this event. But now that she moved to high-fly politics, the question remains who will move into Twin Oaks. Now, what is Twin Oaks? Well, Twin Oaks is an 18th century mansion in Cleveland Park of Washington, D.C. It's also the second largest heritage building from that era in our capital. It happens to be the official residence of the Taiwanese ambassador. By the way, I've just uh, said this is the second largest mansion. What is the largest one? It's called the White House, and is the official residence of the President of the United States of America. So if you wonder how, over 45 years, Taiwan Relations Act was maintained, it has a lot to do with those big receptions that the Taiwanese ambassador organizes at Twin Oaks, whose chef always needs to make sure that his cooking skill is a couple of notches above what the cook of the People's Republic of China offers in the city. Culinary diplomacy? 
Give it to me, baby. Yummy. Currently, if you happen to visit this venerable mansion, you will find a red and white boat parked in front. This is Ipanitika, a traditional ocean-going canoe dug on Orchid Island, which belongs to Taiwan, but is inhabited by a Pacific ethnic group called Tao. It's beautifully carved, about 25 foot long, with a pointed shape of the bow in another part of the world that might remind you of the scary Viking vessels. Now, that seafaring nature of Taiwan's multifarious cultures brings us closer to another island country in the region, which, just like Taiwan, suffers from devastating earthquakes on a regular basis, and that's Japan. Japanese Foreign Minister Yoko Kamikawa sent congratulatory message for President-elect Lai Qingde following the election on Sunday. Now, that reflects excitement that the Taiwanese election generated in Japan. I personally received plenty of messages from Japan in the run-up to and following the elections. Indeed, if there is one country that understands Taiwan well, well, it's Japan. After all, Taiwan was, during the formative 50 years of its modernization, part of Japan. And the human, personal, societal, economic, historical and spiritual links between the two countries remain very strong. In fact, it would be hard to find a better friend that Japan has in the region better than Taiwan, although luckily uh, Japan's relations with the Philippines and especially with South Korea have been improving of late, so I spoke about it not long ago. And Japan also sent a delegation of lawmakers to Taipei immediately after the announcement of the results. Keiji Furuya, the head of a cross-party group of Japanese lawmakers dedicated to strengthening Tokyo-Taipei relations, met with the Taiwanese president-elect on Sunday to congratulate him on his election victory and express anticipation towards a deepening of bilateral cooperation between the two countries. Now, Beijing was, of course, infuriated by Japan's reaction. Chinese embassy in Tokyo expressed strong dissatisfaction and firm opposition over Minister Yoko Kamikawa's congratulatory message. The embassy said that such a practice seriously interferes with China's internal affairs and violates one-China principle. Except nobody outside Moscow believes in this nonsense anymore. Communists, cartoonish intimidation does not work. For all its absurdity, communist intimidation simply does not work. Only with an approach of dignity and mutual respect is there a reason to resume dialogue between the two countries. The initiative will certainly come from Taiwan, and this is encouraged by Washington. Let's see, after the Lunar New Year holiday, how this evolves. If the room can be created for conversation at a lower level, the tension would ease somewhat. Okay, let's now address some other issues of the week, each of which has something to do with um, another bully that gets thrown off the wall by other nations' democratic feelings, and that's, of course, Mother Russia. First, BRICS, or BRICS Plus, the sprawling grouping dominated by China and recently expanded with four Middle Eastern countries, none of which is Jewish or Turkic, in case you wonder. And who took over the annual leadership of BRICS on January 1st? Well, it's Russia. So, expect those countries to tell Moscow's priorities this year. It won't be difficult. Russia is very much at home, at BRICS. It buys drones from Iran, and even now produces their copies at home. It collaborates with the Saudis on oil prices. It relies on India and China as its largest fossil fuel customers, and it's also building a nuclear reactor that will provide 10% of Egypt's power. And of course, in a small way, BRICS will continue to prioritize non-dollar financial exchanges in such a way that would make its countries less exposed to future U.S. sanctions. 
In this context, a battle over $300 billion in Russian assets stored in Western Europe will become interesting because the weaponization of accumulated wealth will define the nature of this conflict. Is the current kinetic conflict considered a prep for a major war with China, in which case alienating dollar-using counterparties by seizing the Russian assets to rebuild Ukraine could be strategically counterproductive? Or are we in a, what communists used to claim when singing the international, it's the final countdown. Okay, if that's true, therefore, no holds barred, let's push the button now. I betcha Russians will resort to the Western courts to plea their case for 300 billion. Well, how about you stop killing civilians in Ukraine first? The second piece of Russia-related news is actually good. When I was much younger, I did a lot of judo, the Japanese martial arts. There are many sets of techniques. Nagawaza for throws, Newaza, that is ground techniques, and then there is Kansetsuwaza. This one consists in locking the opponent's joints, like elbows, shoulders, or wrists. It's simple and relies on little force placed strategically to immobilize the opponent. Frankly, to this day, these techniques allow me to painfully immobilize a bear fly that's a bit too rowdy. Who's the bear fly of interest for us today? Well, you certainly have heard of Viktator, the Hungarian dictator, Viktor Orban. This term, Viktator, was coined, apparently, by the previous head of the European Commission, Claude Junkers. And when you listen to him, Viktator sounds like he would love so much to return to Hungarians' ancestral lands. And no, 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 I don't mean Romania, Ukraine, Vojvodina, or Slovakia, but somewhere in Ural, which is where Magyars apparently originate from, judging from some DNA testing. But here's a snag. They're stuck in Europe, for now, and inside the European Union. And in a sign that the supposedly extremist right-wing traditionalists are actually capable of governing and pulling levers of realpolitik, it turns out that right-wing Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni has found leverage over Viktor Orban. In fact, it's the diminutive Giorgia that is exercising her Suaza on Hungary's overweight dictator. How does this work? Well, in order to force him to end his opposition to European support for Ukraine and to improve relations with Volodymyr Zelensky, Giorgia Meloni has dug out a carrot that she's dangling in front of Viktor's greedy nostrils. If the Hungarian premier complies with Georgia's wishes, it could pave the way for his Fidesz party to join the European Conservatives and Reformists Alliance alongside Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia and some other far-right groups. Have you noticed the change since 2021? Today, if you want to be in a right-wingers club, you have to disgorge your Putin-lover ID. Poor dictator must be suffering from a serious bout of cognitive dissonance here, but he's probably not alone. For a long time, the left has brandished its alleged monopoly on standing up to tyranny. Meloni, not Le Pen, is today the most prominent right-wing leader in Western Europe, and she has read the winds right. Or at the very least, she must have watched that video when Matteo Salvini, an erstwhile Putin lover, was heckled by the mayor of Przemysl, a Polish city, that was taking millions of Ukrainian refugees in early 2022. Alright, we'll see how it goes with Hungary, but it's potentially good news for Ukraine. Well, the next two pieces will serve as a bit of a downer, and both have something to do with transportation. Not transportation here, or where you live, rather, transportation links across the heartland of Eurasian steppes. Yes, the poetic steppes, exalted by Soviet movie director Sergei Bondarchuk. If you can find a copy of these movies, I strongly recommend it. So, who needs transportation across the steppes? It's North Korea. 
which is looking to start sending to Russia new types of tactical guided missiles. North Korean foreign minister, whose name you may have never heard, Cho Son Hoi, traveled to Moscow on Monday. Was the purpose of the visit? To prepare a visit by Putin to Pyongyang and to enhance arms transfers that have replenished the Kremlin's arsenal to attack Ukraine and helped Russia intensify their shelling this winter. This flight of munitions was opened after Kim Jong-un's visit to Far East Russia in September. Which way are those munitions shipped? Well, there are two ways. One is via the so-called Northeast Passage, that is, the Arctic shipping route, somewhat more difficult to cross in winter. The other one is by using the rail line that Tsar Alexander III began to build in the early 1890s, is the famed Trans-Siberian Railway that spans almost 6,000 miles from the Pacific to Moscow. When the construction was initiated, this was an interesting move from Alexander III, a reactionary, anti-Semitic, russifying tyrant, because he actually personally survived a train crash once. Closer to our times, that is last November, Ukrainian special forces did a brilliant job blowing up a section of that key connection that allows for shipments of not only North Korean military equipment, but also of Chinese machine tools to build Russian weapons. In fact, this battle of the rails falls into a long history of Russian imperialism. The Trans-Siberian Line played a key role in several conflicts that connected the European theater with Asia. First, by failing to bring Russian troops on time to fight the Japanese in 1905, and then incentivizing victorious Japan to develop their own rail network in Manchuria, thus by the 1930s turning this part of Northeast Asia into the second most industrialized region in Asia after Japan proper. Then the Trans-Siberian route connected Japan with Nazi Germany, during the two years when the two Axis powers were allied with the USSR, so between 1939 and 1941. Mind you, American minerals were also shipped by this route to the Nazi German markets, long after Hitler had invaded Poland and France. I mentioned this uh, before we Americans begin to pontificate about our unblemished role in... what was it exactly? Stopping the Holocaust? Yeah, right. And later, the Trans-Siberian route was used again after Hitler betrayed his ally in Moscow, when much of the land lease material from the US traveled by rail. And so now it's Chapter 4 and it's Pyongyang's term. North Korea is really wasting no time to truly connect Russia's European war with the heating conflict in the Pacific, because Pyongyang's pro-Russian moves are inevitably dragging South Korea to the Ukrainian side. Seoul has pledged to send Ukraine over a third of a billion dollars this year, and more agreements are coming. The second sobering news about transportation across the vast stretches of the Eurasian expanse concerns uranium. And here's why. In late December, U.S. House of Representatives passed the resolution to wean the U.S. market from Russian enrichment. This is called Prohibiting Russian Uranium Imports Act. It was approved by a voice vote and would bar Russian uranium imports 90 days after enactment, while allowing, however, a temporary waiver until January 2028, that is four years from now. Now, the bill needs to be passed by the Senate and then signed by the President. As we all remember, the U.S. imposed various sanctions on Russian-produced oil and gas since Moscow's invasion, but Russian-enriched uranium has long been used to fuel America's 92 commercial nuclear reactors, and shamefully, that has so far escaped any sanctions. This is now changing, given that Russia's Rosatom, which sells the material to the U.S., also helped orchestrate the takeover of Ukraine's Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. In fact, the U.S. spends an estimated billion dollars per year on nuclear fuel that is enriched by Russia. 
Just as a reminder, enrichment is the third stage in processing uranium after mining and conversion. It's a necessary step to obtain nuclear fuel. Russia is also the only commercially available source of this specially highly enriched reactor fuel, which is needed for a new breed of smaller advanced nuclear reactors that are under development, the so-called SMRs. Why are we so dependent on Russia? Well, it's a parallel development to America's and the West's deindustrialization that accelerated under George W. Bush's administration, except that, in the case of uranium, the history actually goes back a bit further. Throughout the 1990s, the United States turned away from its own enrichment capabilities in favor of using down-blended stocks of Soviet-era weapons-grade uranium. That program, dubbed Megatons to Megawatts, was part of various non-proliferation efforts undertaken in the 1990s in a joint effort back then by Moscow and Washington to sequester and dilute post-Soviet stocks of nuclear weapons and materials. Many of these weapons were located in former Soviet republics, in particular Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. So when the USSR was dissolved in December of 91, each of those new countries became nuclear powers overnight. As we know, two years later, in 93, Ukraine relinquished Soviet-era nuclear weapons held on its territory, and the country is paying a very high price for it till today. This megatons to megawatts program attempted to achieve three objectives. First, reduce the number of nuclear weapons out there, Second, provide the U.S. with cheap fuel. And third, provide Moscow with much-needed cash during the crisis-prone 1990s in Russia. Every nuclear power plant at some point used this fuel that is downbladed from the originally weapon-grade, highly enriched uranium produced by the Soviets. The problem is that this scheme also destroyed the profitability of America's enrichment facilities, which were eventually shuttered. Then, uh, when the Megatons to Megawatts program was shut in 2013, instead of investing in upgraded centrifuges in the United States, Obama and later Trump and later Biden just kept buying enriched uranium from Russia, even after Crimea annexation, believe it or not. Asleep at the nuclear switch? Well, apparently 5% of U.S. households are powered by fuel enriched by Putin's Rosatom. And that's before we even start speaking about uranium for our weapons program and for our nuclear navy. These uses do not need that much uranium as commercial utilities because they use lower volumes but at a higher enrichment value. But there is a snag. In accordance with the Non-Proliferation Treaty, of which the US is the main Cerberus after all, the military may only use domestically sourced uranium, which means domestically mined, processed and enriched. As of 2023, US had practically no active uranium mining operations, although this will soon change. I mentioned before that the mined uranium needs to be converted and enriched. Well, we have one conversion facility, Converdin, in Illinois, and one enrichment facility, Urenco, in New Mexico. But it's not technically U.S. technology, so it can't be used for the military. So we quickly need to build our own enrichment facility. How quickly? Well, that depends on how quickly we run down that uh, old Cold War stockpile, which is managed by the Department of Energy, and dwindling. Also, the military nuclear uses require production of low-enriched tritium, which is a result of fission of several isotopes of uranium and plutonium, and is currently being made by down-blending high-assay material. All of these sources are finite. As I mentioned before, the U.S. Senate is yet to vote on the Russia import ban, and is more likely to pass the bill if it contains specific funding to support new fuel cycle development, including expanded production, enrichment, and conversion, especially for high-assay, low-enriched uranium, which is necessary for those smaller, advanced reactors. What happens if the Senate votes in favor of the bill? 
Well, then the U.S. utilities have about two years of inventory on this waiver until the incredibly distant 2028. But this slow decision-making process between the House, the Senate, and the President's signature gives Putin the chance to seize initiative here. Given that return business is unlikely, he may simply preempt the ban on so-called Class 7 deliveries by shutting down exports outright. Coincidentally, we have an added problem with Kazakhstan, which mines about 50% of uranium globally. First, Kazakhstan's uh, production will disappoint in 24 and 25, probably for reasons related to insufficient supplies of sulfuric acid, which is necessary for in-situ recovery used in many of the Kazakh mines. And the second issue relates to the transportation of this material. Yes, we're back in those vast Eurasian expanses with their Russian-dominated transportation links. As you know, Kazakhstan is landlocked, with only one shore to speak of, at the Caspian Sea, which is the world's largest lake, with the shores shared between Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan to the east, Iran to the south, Azerbaijan to the west, and Russia to the north and the west. It's also the Caspian Route, which is used for Iran's weapon deliveries to Russia for its war against Ukraine. Those Shahid-136 drones floated undisturbed via this inland sea route, and apparently the much faster Shahid-238 will also soon be exported via this route. These new Shahids are more dangerous because they have a jet engine that will fly at uh, 500 kilometers per hour and not 185 kilometers per hour, to whose distinctive sound Ukrainian civilians are already accustomed to. So how does Kazakh uranium travel to reach the Western markets? One way is by rail via Russia to St. Petersburg. Well, good luck with that. That road, anyway, was proved unreliable already since the Soccer World Cup, which was organized in Russia between the two Ukrainian wars. During that event, no uranium could be exported through St. Petersburg. A Canadian Kazakh consortium called Inkai thus planned another route that would bypass Russia, and that's the Caspian route. First, uranium travels overland in Kazakhstan to the shore of the Caspian and then is shipped to Azerbaijan on vessels from where it is transported overland through Georgia to the port of Poti on the Black Sea, from where it could, in theory, float freely to the west. Except that, as you may have seen, the war in Ukraine has now spilled over to the NATO territory in the Black Sea. So, Romania, Bulgaria and Turkey will soon begin the process of sweeping Russian mines from the Black Sea. But as one cargo ship was hit by a mine about 10 days ago, and as Ukrainians have successfully diminished Russian navy around Crimea, it is possible that the Black Sea route for uranium becomes unstable. So don't be surprised if uranium proves to be the best-performing commodity of 2024. It's already on its way. Thank you for listening. Let's meet again next week.